1: You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. No computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the great robot wars. Anteater Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in 3, 2, 1. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold, with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and last but not least, zot, 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 everyday anteaters. Hello, anteater nation. Welcome to this week's edition of UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and today's show is a goodie. My guest is UCI Associate Professor of Chicano-Latino Studies, English, and Literary Journalism, writer Hector Tobar. Professor Tobar has written five books so far in his professional career, including the best-selling Deep Down Dark, also simply known as The 33, the story of the 33 Chilean miners who were trapped underground for over two months in 2010, before being heroically rescued, which went on to become a major motion picture hit starring Antonio Banderas. He also wrote for the Los Angeles Times for 18 years as a critic, columnist, foreign and national correspondent, as well as a city reporter, where he earned a Pulitzer Prize as part of a team that covered the 1992 LA riots. Wow, much, much, much to talk about here, Bienvenidos, Professor Tobar. Como está usted? Or to be completely transparent (laughs) with my gringoness, how are you today, sir?
0: (laughs) Todo excelente. Very well, thank you. Um, Thank you for having me.
1: Fantastic. Well, Well, please tell us, Professor, where did you grow up and what did you like to do when you were a kid?
0: Oh, I grew up in various parts of Southern California, first and foremost in East Hollywood, which was where I was born. Uh, East Hollywood is the sort of seedier part of, of Hollywood, the more immigrant and migrant part where I lived was called little Armenia. And, uh-huh. um, and as a kid, just, I loved playing sports uh, and watching sports. I played uh, lots of um, blacktop baseball flag football, just loved reading the sports page in the newspaper. Um, so I was, I was a big sports kid growing up and um And also, I just liked my schoolwork. I was a pretty good student. Later, I went to Montebello Intermediate School in Montebello, which is kind of a step up after my mother uh, remarried. And then finally, I went to high school in South Whittier, which is the unincorporated underbelly of the more affluent uh, city of Whittier, which is now kind of a Chicano, you know, upper middle class neighborhood. But South Whittier was definitely not. I grew up in in the flats of South Whittier and went to a high school that was closed by Proposition 13 in 1978. And uh, Hmm. then went off to college. Interesting. When you say it was closed because of a proposition, did you say 13? Yes.
1: Mm -hmm. How did that happen? Property taxes went down so they couldn't afford to have a high school or what?
0: Yeah. They um, the Whittier union high school district had several high schools and um, they had this budget crisis because Mm -hmm. of the, a reduction in property tax funds from Proposition 13. And um, they ended up closing my high school, which was Sierra High School, uh, which was the most one of the most Latino high schools in the district. And they forced us, they divided us up between the other high schools. Um, and so that was my, uh, you know, it was a, it was sort of a first encounter with institutional racism, I have to say. Mm, wow.
1: So did you go to college right after high school?
0: Yeah, I went to UC Santa Cruz, um, Mm -hmm. like many of my students today, um, a product of public education. And I went off to UC Santa Cruz uh, to to study biology. I thought I would be a pre-med student, and I really enjoyed my science classes, but I also had to take one of these English core courses that you have to take, composition courses. Mm -hmm. And it turned out to be a survey of various causes of justice and injustice in the world and that course changed my life. And I ended up changing my major to Latin American studies and sociology and thought that um, I would somehow aid the cause of uh, Latin American uh, revolution, <laughs> <laughs> working somewhere in the United States um, and thought I would become a professional uh, revolutionary. But, you know, there wasn't many gigs in that. And I just ended up doing odd jobs after college, you know, I worked in childcare and, you um, did various things like that. And eventually I wandered into the offices of a community newspaper up in San Francisco where I had moved and um, I became the editor of that newspaper. And eventually that led to my career in journalism and then my career in, in writing, in, in writing books.
1: Yeah. Were there any seminal pieces that you either wrote yourself or that you read that, that you felt inspired you or helped you carry on?
0: Oh, yeah. I think that, well, you know, we're talking, when I went to college, it was the the mid-1980s, and um, there wasn't a lot of Latino literature that was widely available. So um, I was really turned on by Richard Wright's novel uh, from the Great Depression, Native Son, and also by the idea that he was this African-American communist from the 1930s. And so Native Son just absolutely changed my life. And then I read so much more African-American literature. I read <clears throat> all the Toni Morrison books I can get a hold of. Uh, I read Alice Walker. Then I started to read a lot of African literature. Uh, Ngugi Watyong'o I read, who is now a professor at the same, you know, in the same department where I teach. And just, uh, you know, I, I think that most of, my, some, most of the formative moments of my education in college came when I'd go to the used bookstore just off campus and browse the, the fiction shelves. And, um, and that, that was really what was transformative to me. And also just meeting some incredible professors who just really turned me on to the idea of language and ideas as the source of power. Um, so I would have to say the University of California uh, really changed my life. Mm, wow.
1: So was there early in your career, cause it, you know, it sounded like you jumped around a little bit, not really, you know, feeling like you were solidified into having a writing career. What was the first job that you had where you felt like, you know, I, I think I may make this as a writer.
0: Well, I mean, first of all, I never really had any writing models growing up. I didn't know that writing was a profession that you could have, hmm. or at least one that I could have. It just never, never occurred to me. No one ever really told me um, that I could pursue uh, a career in writing or that I should write um, books And um, I think it was just wandering into that community newspaper in San Francisco. I mean, also in college, I did write for um, we had a third world so-called third world uh, magazine journal on campus. And I wrote a couple of articles. And I remember my first article for them was I wrote an article about going to an international women's day celebration in Mexico City, where I had been a student, a student in study abroad uh, for the University of California. And, you know, I just got some phenomenal response from, uh, from, from many students who read that piece. And, um, and then later when I went off to, uh, to move to San Francisco and I found this community newspaper and I just lived there. At first I worked as a volunteer and I realized that I had really strong writing skills that I could share with people. And to have this, you know, and when you work at a little community newspaper, you're joining a family and so i met this family of other volunteer writers and photographers editors and it was just a wonderful experience because what writing did was that it took me a very bookish shy solitary kind of kid and it put me in social situations where you know i had to interact with people first of all in the newspaper that i was working with uh, and also out in the streets you know i had to interview people And so that was just a really wonderful experience. The first long piece I wrote for this newspaper called El Tecolote, which still exists, by the way, was on um, street prostitution in the North Mission District of San Francisco. And I just talked to a lot of people for that story um, and and just got out into the streets and and did some interviews. And um, it was just a really, the whole, you know, working for that newspaper was a phenomenal experience. And it eventually led to me applying for an internship at the LA Times.
1: Wow. Interesting, you know, st- interviewing for a story with street prostitution. Do you, do you remember what was enlightened for you? Or do you remember, you know, anything that like you were surprised, like, oh, wow.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, I, I had been told that the editor at El Tecolote, Juan Gonzalez, gave me this assignment and said there had been a lot of uh, complaints from uh, merchants in, uh, in the North Mission District. So I went to the street corner uh, in, the, in the North Mission District where there was a McDonald's. And I looked around and I saw a couple of, I saw this one woman of about probably like 25 or so who was obviously working, you know, uh, as a sex worker uh, on the, on the corner. And I, I walked up to her and I said, hi, <laughs> And she <laughs> said, hello, thinking that I was a John. And I said, no, no, no. I'm, I'm a, I'm a writer and I'm writing about the complaints that a lot of people here in the neighborhood have about the sex workers. And she said, um, she said, oh, "Okay, well, you know." And we started talking. And I said, "Look, let me buy you a breakfast over here at the McDonald's." And she said, "Oh, cool! I'll invite this other girl who's working." And she looks across the street at this other woman, who's much older. And so the three of us walk over to the McDonald's and we start talking. And after about ten minutes, I, I realize, um, because also because they told me that the older woman was the mother of the younger woman. So they were mother and daughter working together uh, on the street. And that was an incredible surprise, something I never would have imagined. And that really taught me a basic lesson about journalism, that journalism would teach me again and again, which is that you can never really know the fullness and the complexity of the human experience until you begin to ask questions and you enter into that experience. You know, that was a tremendous, a tremendous moment. And I've had so many moments like that in the length and breadth of my career of, of going and meeting people and having them surprise me in one way or another. And that's really what I've always loved about working as a journalist and, and of being a writer is that you never really know what you're going to find next.
1: Mm-hmm. So how long is it until you get to the L.A.
0: Times? Oh, I worked at El Tecolote for a couple of years. Huh? And, uh, and then I uh, applied for an internship at a program uh, specifically directed at minority, so-called minority uh, reporters, yeah. which is really funny because now everybody in California is a minority. <laughs> but, <laughs> but back then, you know, to be Latino was to be part of a minority, minority group. And so, um, yeah, I went to the LA Times. I was 25 years old and I did this internship and they trained us in the basics of reporting and the program was called, was called BEP Pro. The minority editorial training program, and you know they sent us off to courthouses to just do sort of uh, practice stories on on court cases. They assigned us to a police station, so I was assigned to the Northeast LA Police Station, which is funny because it's my current police station. It's where I I you know I live in Northeast Los Angeles, and so I'd go to this police station and ask them every day, Hey, what's going on? What's happening? You know, and uh, did some ride-alongs uh, in that same uh, police uh, precinct, police district. Of the LAPD and that was the beginning of my training in the newspaper and then you sort of do the basic thing when you get hired, you do cop stories, you do the the night shifts, you do the grunt work and uh, from then on I just sort of went from one job to the other in the LA Times for about five years.
1: Excuse me for a moment Professor while I update our audience. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host Kevin Bossenmeyer and my guest today is UCI English Literary Journalism, Chicano Studies professor Hector Tobar. And we're just talking about now when he started at the Los Angeles Times and his career uh, of 18 years there. Do you remember what your first big
0: assignment was, professor, at the LA Times or, or something that, that evolved oh, into a big absolutely. story? Absolutely. Well, first of all, I, I was lucky enough to eventually be asked to join the Metro section of the LA Times. And your job there when you're a Metro reporter is to both cover whatever they send you to cover, but also to come up with feature ideas. And so I came up with my first big front page feature, which was about refugees from El Salvador coming to Los Angeles and finding um, members of the Salvadoran military were also refugees with them. So you'd have these exiled revolutionaries who were finding their own enemies on the streets of Los Angeles. And that became a, a you know a wonderful front page story. I interviewed um, several former revolutionaries, uh, a few, oh. uh, many former soldiers, and one in particular told the story of uh, one particular former revolutionary told the story of finding um, a p- person who had committed a massacre uh, in his hometown in El Salvador, seeing this person in the park, MacArthur Park, which is sort of like you know the sort of center of the Central American community in Los Angeles uh, and deciding that he was going to, you know, take an act of vengeance upon him. Later on, he was talked out of it uh, by his refugee worker, sort of counselor. Uh, but yeah, so that was my first sort of big story. And then I just did lots of really great news stories on the weekends, you know, the big sort of the, I remember a, um, a front page story on the sort of huge winter storm coming into Los Angeles. I did a story in which I, I took a story about a traffic jam Um, caused by a collapse of a tunnel and the sidebar, the story, which was really just supposed to be a side story. I took that story and I just wrote it up with as much detail as I could. And I got it onto the front page. And I remember this wonderful editor at the LA times, Tim, right? Tim Reiterman coming up to me, Uh, Tim Reiterman had also been by the way himself, a reporter who was from the San Francisco examiner before who had been at Jonestown and had been a survivor of the, of the massacre at Jonestown uh, committed by, um, jim jones's um, minions tim reiterman came up to me and he says hector that's amazing you took a story about a traffic jam in la and you got it on the front page <laughs> <laughs> so um you know it was just so much fun once you sort of figured out the basics of the craft um and then you just worked really hard at it it was fun to sort of just get all these sort of different kinds of stories and to show what you could do You know, and then when I worked in the San Fernando Valley briefly, I did a story about the history of segregation in the city of San Fernando, and that was eye opening to a lot of people. It was eye opening to me. I did not know that San Fernando had been founded as this farm town, and that at one point the railroad tracks through the middle of town had divided uh, the white and Latino sections of the city. And so I talked to the old timers who remembered the days of segregation in San Fernando. So it was just a wonderful experience because I had a whole city as my playground. You know, I could go and and do uh, any story I wanted. I wrote a story about the homeless camps back then. You know, the homeless camps uh, were kind of a relatively not relatively new phenomenon, but they weren't the, ex- the explosion that they are today. But I wrote about the homeless camps on some of the most expensive property in the center of Los Angeles and described the incredible social contradiction that was sort of playing out there. So it was just a, a time when I was very ambitious, and I was able to find uh, ways to tell stories that left a mark on the, on the newspaper.
1: Yes, yes, you know, having seen the uh, homeless, you know, situation from y- years ago, and does it, the explosion of homelessness now surprise you? Do you do you feel like that you have an insight into that? Because I've asked myself like. Well, we've had these problems you know decades and decades it's it's a historical problem but man it just seems to be exploding more so than ever do, do do you have a a short explanation for that
0: well first of all i can remember a time when there wasn't any homelessness in the city of los angeles so if there was it was very very hidden yeah. i remember i have my vivid first memory of seeing a homeless person. And I was about nine or 10 years old going on one of the on-ramps in downtown Los Angeles, the one on-ramp that's over there by, um, uh, by Olvera street and and Los Angeles street Uh and seeing somebody living in the middle of that, of that sort of on-ramp, you know, Uh yeah, and uh, of the loop of the Mm on-ramp. And, um, and that was very vivid to me. And so to have a memory of this more affluent city with a really much larger, healthier, um, more secure middle class than exists today, uh, and then to sort of see what has happened today in, in modern Southern California—it's very disturbing. You know, it's very disturbing. It is. And I, I you know, and it's—it has to do with just how difficult it's become to stay in the middle class. I think, uh, you know, uh, so much of American life. You are being counted and documented and categorized and measured, right? Our credit rating, I guess, is like the most important measure. Um, and we don't even see it, we don't even know it, you know, most of the time. Mm-hmm. And so I think, as that, as, as American society uh, has these greater gaps between rich and poor, mm-hmm. and as it makes it mo- harder to stay in the middle class, you have more and more people who are wounded in some way or have had some sort of trauma happen to them or um, have some sort of, uh, you know, um, monkey on their back, you know, some loan that they took out or a divorce that went wrong or an illness. And so that just um, that just sort of is it's what we're seeing is an increase in the number of people who just can't keep up with the treadmill. Of American middle class life because that treadmill is moving faster and faster and faster all the time.
1: Hmm. When did you become a foreign correspondent?
0: Well, you know, I went to UCI after five years at the LA Times. I quit the LA Times to get hmm. an MFA in writing,
1: hmm. uh,
0: and so I quit, and it was a wonderful experience in the you know master's in fine arts program and creative writing and fiction. And this and was at um, you, you, this was at UCI that you got that. Yes, at UC Irvine. And my, my mentor was the great Australian writer, Thomas Keneally. And I wrote a novel and I thought, um, you know, I had quit the LA Times, and, but I didn't sell the novel right away. And when I did sell it, I sold it for $5,000, my first novel, The Tattooed Soldier, which has since, you know, been reprinted and repurchased, you know, by other uh, editorial houses and, and, you know, and has had a really wonderful long existence. But at first I didn't really see that I could make a living as a fiction writer, so I went back to journalism, went back to the LA times and circa 2000, I was the LA times national Latino affairs correspondent. And then I was the national correspondent for all issues of race. So I traveled back and forth across the United States, writing about issues of race, wow. this job in Buenos Aires opened up. And I, you know, I asked my, you know, my, my wife, Virginia Spino, do you want to go? you know, we had two kids by then. And she said, yes, let's go. Let's go to Buenos Aires. And so I applied <laughs> for the job in Buenos Aires. I got the job and that was my first gig. It was in, um, you know, I was scheduled to go the week of September 11th. Uh, we ended up postponing it by almost a month because of all the chaos, uh, you know, in the country uh, after uh, of September 11th. Uh, and then, you know, we flew off to Buenos Aires. My, my son started, my oldest son started kindergarten at a school in Buenos Aires. And I was responsible for covering everything in South America, South of Peru, including Brazil. <laughs> and so I learned Portuguese, maso you know, um uh, pouquinho de portugues, you know, I learned, and and that was incredibly fun. Yeah, so it was that was my first experience as a foreign correspondent covering something like six or seven countries for the LA Times from Buenos Aires.
1: Wow, um, how long were you stationed in Buenos
0: Aires? I was there for four years. Four years. Okay. okay. Yeah. And I lived through the great crisis of 2001 where the economy collapsed and there was basically this rebellion that took place in in the streets in front of my office. And the building next door to mine was set on fire. and You know, it was, it was amazing. Then I covered the revolution in Bolivia. There was a, you know, an indigenous led revolution in Bolivia that brought down the president. Um, I covered the, uh, the attempted coup or revolution, depending on your point of view, against Hugo Chavez. I think it was in 2003 or so, in or 2002 in Venezuela. That was an amazing experience. So, yeah, it was a great gig.
1: Yeah. Did you ever get in any precarious situations? Dangerous?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> um, the only time I ever felt in danger as a foreign correspondent, the ever, only time I ever really felt truly terrified. Was when I was in Ciudad Juarez. Later, I became the LA Times bureau chief in Mexico City, and I did that job for three years. And I went to go write a story about the drug wars, and I was in uh, Ciudad Juarez, and um, I I went to go interview this man whose best friend had been killed uh, during. You know, he was like a uh, he was like a newspaper editor or something, and he had been killed. And in talking to this man, he was so terrified he didn't want to say anything that would get him into trouble. And in talking to him, I remember leaving that interview and going into a taxi. And for the first time, I wondered, is somebody here following me? And I don't know that anybody was, but it, the whole city looked different after I talked to him because he was so absolutely terrified. And, um, you know, and so there was there was that moment also going to. um uh, cover this revolution in Bolivia. <laughs> I remember we went to this this town, El Alto, which is where La Paz it's right outside of La Paz, Bolivia's capital, and it's where the airport is. And we you know, I went up to to cover this neighborhood because it's sort of like the Soweto of Bolivia. It's this massive urban, poor neighborhood where the working class of La Paz lives. And we I was traveling with a whole bunch of other reporters from all over Latin America. I think there was a Venezuelan and a Mexican correspondent. And we're sort of traveling there and we managed to get into a we managed to find an ambulance that would drive us around and one of the ladies one of the reporters said can you tell the tell the driver to go faster we're in a hurry we have deadlines to meet and i said um no i don't think you should drive any faster because if this if this ambulance filled with foreigners gets in an accident and hits a bolivian kid a mob is going to form in about 15 seconds and they're going to lynch us (laughs) because that's what had been happening in Bolivia. And and the lady says, the reporter says, you know, tell them to slow down. down." (laughs) So, um, you know, it was just, you know, there were just, it really, oh, and also as I have to say too, I mean, what am I forgetting that I was sent for three weeks to Baghdad in 2003 to cover the beginning of the Iraqi insurgency right
1: yeah
0: and I was you know they they called me up in Buenos Aires and said Hector um you know we thought the war was over because remember we invaded Iraq uh Saddam fell um but it looks like this is heating up again can you get to um can you go to Baghdad is that I said sure there
1: was that famous aircraft carrier or battleship that uh, President Bush went on with the uh, mission accomplished, yes. and was that that right. was post right after that? I
0: think. Yes, it was after that exactly. Yeah. It was maybe a few weeks after that. Yeah, and so they said, also Hector, we need you to take cash to the bureau in Baghdad because they don't, um, uh, they you know, the, the, there's no banking system anymore. We just pay everybody in cash. So we need you to take yeah. ten thousand dollars in cash. So I picked up $10,000 in Washington, D.C. I flew from Buenos Aires to Washington, picked up $10,000 in cash, flew on to Jordan. And then I had to, you know, the airport in Baghdad was closed because the insurgents were firing missiles at all the incoming aircraft. So I had to take, I had to join this caravan of cars that drove at like 150 miles an hour from Amman, jordan to baghdad crossing you know some of the most dangerous parts of iraq i was terrified i had (laughs) i was terrified at that
1: moment were you you truly terrified
0: i was i mean i wasn't like terrified that i was i was just you know it was just difficult to and then at night you know i got into you go to baghdad and you'd be in this i'd be in the hotel where we were staying and you would hear the bombs going off and i was very lucky because i was there just before it got really bad so i went to a series of places that were later bombed the hotel where i stayed was bombed i went to the red cross headquarters that was bombed like a few weeks later i went to the un headquarters that was bombed a few weeks later so that was and the worst part about about being um uh an american correspondent um was that i didn't speak any arabic so i was Uh everywhere i was with translators and so i was sort of deaf dumb and blind you know i just felt Mm -hmm. like i didn't really know what was going on. Um, So, yeah, I mean, there was just, those were just a few moments, but generally speaking, I always felt pretty safe. Stayed at, stayed at really nice hotels and, you know, ordered room service. And uh, it was, it was, it was a really good gig.
1: I just laugh a little bit because it seemed like you just rattled off about a dozen really dangerous things. It's like besides that it was a good, a safe good gig but uh, well very good. Excuse me just one more time professor ladies and gentlemen if you joined us late you are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine the UCI Conversation Show, and my guest today is UCI English and writing professor Hector Tobar, and he's talking all about his literary career and writing process, and we get to the point where he wrote a book about the Chilean miners who were rescued. How does that evolve, Hector? Did you hear about the story, or did you hear about it and think, I want to write about this? How did that all come into play?
0: Well, you know, I followed it like most of humanity did, you know, it was on CNN every day on the the television and didn't really think, you know, that I'd ever get involved in in writing a story about them. And this this is all like
1: August of 2010.
0: Yes. It's in the, in our fall in the Northern hemisphere fall of 2010, which would be the spring down in South America. But yeah. So yeah, during that, you know, fall, I followed this. And then the next year I was finishing up uh, the page proofs of my novel, The Barbarian Nurseries. So I was just doing the final sort of line editing corrections on my novel. And I was at this cafe in South Pasadena where I always worked. And I got a call on my phone from New York from my agent. And, you know, when you're a writer and you're, you're lucky enough to be represented by a New York agent, you hear from them maybe, you know, once a year or once every three years, <laughs> you know, wow. just a rare thing. Yeah. And so I see, you know, a phone number, of my agent, I said, hey, how's it going? And he says, Hector, did you hear about that Chilean miners thing? And I said, yeah, yeah. What about it? And he says, well, would you be interested in writing their book? And I said, uh, what do you mean? I and mean, do you have their rights? And he says, yeah, we have their rights. And I said, how many of them? Because I knew that there were many of them, 33, of course, mm-hmm. and all. Mm-hmm. He said, yeah, we have all of them. And I said, all of them. (laughs) And I said, yeah, I'd be really interested. And then later I talked to my editor about it, um, Sean McDonald at FSG, um, wonderful editor, and really one of the sort of people who's helped me most in my career, who was editing my novel, A Barbarian Nurseries. We were just finishing it. And I said, Sean, I'm interested maybe in doing this book on the Chilean miners. And he said, "You know, well, Hector, why do you want to do this book? Do you want to do this book? because you want to make a lot of money or because you want to create a work of art. And I thought well, to myself, I thought, well, both actually. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, um, I think that's a good answer. <laughs> no. And I said, really, I thought, you know, I think that this is something where I can um, use my, my skills and write a book that is, is memorable. And I found out later, you know, that, that the reason why my agent had called me was because um, this agency, William Morris Endeavor, had acquired you know the right to represent the the, the collectivity of the Chilean miners because they had all sort of formed an organization, aided by um, some Chilean attorneys, and they were looking for somebody to write a, a book about the miners that would aid the film because you the thought thinking being you can't really make the film until there's a good book about it, and so they were looking for somebody who spoke Spanish, who also worked as a journalist who had written novels because there was already some really quick and dirty books being done about the miners that were really poor. So they wanted something really, you know, something literary. So looking for a journalist who spoke Spanish, who had also written novels, writes in English and also knew South America. Well, you know, (laughs) I had been the Buenos Aires Bureau chief. I'd been to Chile many times. So when they gave that list of, you know, qualities of descriptions of the person they were looking for, that's really only like three people in the United States. Yeah. (laughs) Me and Francisco Goldman and, uh, you know, a couple of other people. And so William Morris Endeavor asked if I would do it. And I went down to Chile and I met these miners and made my pitch to them. And from then on, I, I wrote a book proposal and, uh, and, you know, and wrote the book. Yeah. Did it take a long time to write the book
1: or did you, you know, did you have a, a short deadline? How did that work?
0: Well, I think that what's defined as a long time is different for a book writer, as opposed to just about anybody else, uh, <laughs> you know, any other profession, uh, well, actually movie makers, movies also take a long time, but for me, that was the fastest book I ever wrote. I wrote it in about, and you know, I wrote it in three years, in oh, three okay. years I wrote it. And it came out four years after, after the disaster, after the rescue. Oh. So yeah, I went down to Chile five or six times. I've sort of lost track. Most of the time I was, my trips were paid for by the movie producers. Mm-hmm. And when I went down there, I would be interviewing the various miners who lived in different parts of Chile. Most of them lived in this one town of Copiapó, this one mining town in Chile. Mm-hmm. I would interview them. And I also would translate for the movie producers and for the screenwriter who's trying to write the screenplay. So it was a tremendous amount of fun, uh, really stressful because you know, telling the story of 33 people, they were also really, really getting antsy. And there was, they were very, very much sort of desperate for the book and the movie to come out. So I had to sort of deal with all of the internal divisions, but also the most important part of it was that I was dealing with men, 33 men and their families and their you know, daughters and wives and girlfriends who had all been through this incredible trauma and really, really wanted to share you know, their experience with someone. So, yeah, it was it was an incredible experience.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Truly riveting book. I will say that when it came time to describe it to people, deep down dark was a real tongue twister for me. And then I did (laughs) see that the movie was called 33. Was there any kind of discussion about that or no, not really?
0: Yeah, no. I mean, I had different titles. Yeah. My titles were different. I could never really come up with a good title. I've always had trouble with the titles of all my books, except for one or two. And so the title with that, yeah, it was eventually the inspiration of my editor, Sean. And I think, you know, a book title serves a different purpose than a movie, uh, a movie title. They're they're different. They're different genres, different marketing, different, you know, different crafts. So I'm happy with both of them. I, you know, and I was really happy with, I mean, the film was not a great work of art. Um, It, you know, wasn't, uh, you know, critically acclaimed, but it was a, you know, it was a decent reflection of the content of the book because the story of these miners ended up, it wasn't for me an adventure story in the end, it was a love story. It was a story about how these men really cared for each other and about how Chile cared for them and how their wives and their families, their girlfriends really cared for them despite their flaws. You You know, you're talking about 33 working men working in one of the hardest, really most dangerous jobs in Chile. And they were there for reasons of, you know, personal crisis or personal ambition. You know, many of them had kids in college working in that kind of dangerous mind, helped provide a kind of more middle-class lifestyle. So the whole sort of family story that was behind this, the love story, you know, the, the movie captured a little bit of that. So I was, I was pleased. Um, I was pleased with the way it came out. And I'm also, um, I was just proud with the way that the book came out because, um, you know, it, it, it did do really well. And not only that, I remember sitting down <laughs> for an interview, we did the sort of junket for the movie in LA and several of the miners came up for the Spanish version of the junket where they could talk to the Spanish media about the film. And one of the miners, Mario Sepulveda, who's sort of the heart and soul of the book, because he became the leader underground. He said, what we hope this book restores our sense of dignity in Chile, because they had been turned into reality television stars in Chile. You know, people didn't really know the sort of full depths of the trauma they went through. And then he said, 85% of what happened to us is in that book, (laughs) you know, and I thought that was really, that was really nice, you know, Uh and, uh, you know, he also, you know, I was very honest about my portrayal with him, of, of him how flawed he was. And he rolled with that. And it was just really wonderful that I was able to accomplish this, write this book that was completely honest about these men and their flaws and also celebrated just how heroic they really were, which was the common everyday heroism of working class people, in my opinion, and that people enjoyed it and read it. So it was a good experience.
1: Yeah, uh, excellent. Do you have any favorite part of the book? Is it like that for a writer?
0: Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, there it's for me, writing is a performance, you know, even, you know, book writing is a performance and it involves a certain amount of physicality. And so I can read passages of that book and my other books too. And there are some passages when I can remember the day that I wrote it, not mm-hmm. like the exact date and time, but yeah. remember the feeling of that day right. because I was in the zone as they say in sports, you know, mm-hmm. when a guy hits like 20 baskets in a row, you know, Stephen Curry is in the zone. Right. <laughs> uh, and so I was, there are days I can look at that. and I can say, Oh, like, you know, I wrote this piece about the miners. Um, uh, you know f- falling in love and what it was like to sort of uh you know the women in their lives and what the women in their lives represented for them i just remember i remember writing that i remember uh writing about how the how the the people around the world thinking about the miners uh, they thought about them so much that it eventually it entered the world's collective subconscious and i remember i remember those passages and i love the the moment when they're all rescued because um it's all, you know, these stories that the miners told me that they were being pulled up out of this hole in the ground after 69 days, buried, you know, 2000 feet underground and that they relived their lives. It was like this moment of being reborn and how their lives flashed before them. So I was really proud of that, you know, but that was something that was just there in the experience. And I'm, I'm just, you know, just glad that I was able to, um, to channel that, um, yeah, uh, into, into passages. And so, yeah, there are definitely, you know, there, there are definite passages that I remember really well and that I uh, I'm proud to have written.
1: Excellent. In the book uh, they talk or they, you <laughs> talk about um, that there's an escape system called the chimney. And um, it's, I think when it's set up, right, it's supposed to be used with a rope or ladder to escape. If something goes really, really bad, which did, but that in this case, they didn't, they hadn't installed the ladders and so forth. Can you just explain that a little bit more? Like, you know, why couldn't they just throw a a rope down and then they could climb out? I guess, was it just not connected like that?
0: Well, what happened was that this mine was a spiral that went down into the earth, you know, 2000 feet, basically, almost as far down as the tallest building on earth is tall. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so um, they had been, it it was it went down that deep because they had been carving into this mountain for more than a century. Mm -hmm. And so when you carve into a mountain for that long, you basically weaken the structure of the very mountain from which you're extracting the ore. Mm -hmm. And so when that, um, when the, when that weakened structure collapsed, it sort of was a chain reaction that caused several different parts of the human created caverns to collapse too, And so the main exit point, which was this ramp collapsed, and it was blocked by, you know, by a wall of stone. And the same thing happened to all of their sort of, you know, side emergency exits. Those exits were blocked with, with stone, even the ones that were passable, the rungs of the ladder inside of them that they were supposed to have basically just the internal structure of this mountain collapsed in ways that trap them. Gotcha.
1: How about your latest book? Can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Well, yeah, you know, I, um, I spent, you know, three years working on this book that was basically about 33 men caught in this incredible adventure underground trapped. And so I like to describe my next book as the complete opposite. (laughs) It's the adventure of one person, who travels around the world and has an adventure in which he circles the globe. And eventually he joins a guerrilla army in El Salvador. And unlike the Chilean miners book, which has this ending in which all the 33 protagonists are rescued, uh, Joe dies at the end of the book. And it's, it's not not a spoiler because from the very beginning you realize that he's dead. So Joe Sanderson is the protagonist of my novel, the last great road Bum which is the story uh, of this real person I, I took his his story and i made it into a novel because joe sanderson was this guy who desperately wanted to be a novelist and he had all of these adventures circling the globe because he told himself that he was trying to write a novel the great american novel so hemingway went to africa for example and, and hemingway was joe's hero so joe went to africa you know Hemingway wrote about the you know the civil war and the guerrilla war uh, in Spain during the Spanish Civil War so Joe you know eventually ended up trying several times to go to conflicts and to write stories from inside the conflict he went to Vietnam as a tourist and actually witnessed a battle on the edges of Saigon and described it in letters home to his parents and so my novel is based On both his failed novels, which were not very good, but mostly on his letters, which were incredible. So I I was granted access to hundreds of his letters home that he wrote during the 20 years he was on the road. And also, he had a journal that he had kept, and a a part of it was rescued by the Salvadoran rebels who who put it into their own sort of uh, museum that they were building during the revolution a kind of museum and archive. of of the revolution. And so from all that material, I wrote the story of this guy who wanders the world, trying to live his life like a character in a novel so that he could write a novel, but never being able to write it. So I wrote it for him. And so that's my novel, The Last Great Road. But, you know, I'm really, really proud of the depiction of the Salvadoran revolution, which takes the second half of the book is about the Salvadoran revolution because Joe had this incredible eye for detail. He has this in his letters home, and he's very irreverent in describing uh, himself inside of this rebel movement. So that's what my book is about, The Last Great Road Bun, uh, available now in paperback from FSG MCD.
1: Well, and so is he on his way to fulfilling his dream, but then he gets killed? Is that kind of what happens?
0: Or? Well, I don't know. I mean, I I don't know if Joe ever would have written. I'm sure he probably would have managed to write a book about El Salvador, to tell you the truth. And he had all these notes and he had lived an incredible experience. But more than just living the dream of becoming a novelist, what he managed to do in El Salvador was to find a place where he was the right man at the right moment because he brought to the Salvadoran revolution all these skills that really did help the revolution. He was a great shot. You know, he had grown up in Urbana, Illinois, in a college town and, you know, good, good Midwestern boy. He was a member of the NRA, could fire, uh, you know, a rifle, any other weapon uh, and was a marksman, very, really marksman also been in the U S army. And so being a marksman, knowing how to use weapons, you know, the basic weapon of the Salvadoran revolution was the M 16, which they managed to steal from the Salvadoran army. And then later, of course, they got some from Cuba and from, uh, you know, the Nicaraguan revolution. So Joe was an expert of the M16. And so he instructed the compañeros on how to use the M16. He was a great swimmer. He had been a lifeguard at a swimming pool in in Champaign-Urbana in his hometown. And he taught the rebels how to swim <laughs> because they had to cross rivers, you know, in their in their campaigns. And sometimes they would almost drown. And so Joe seeing this taught the compañeros how, how to swim. And a lot of these are stories that I was told by former rebels themselves when I went to El Salvador. But even more than that, he represented the idea that the American people were a just and fair people, and that what the U.S. government was doing and supporting this horrible Salvadoran dictatorship that was killing so many people, this murderous dictatorship, that, that really wasn't the essence of the american people and so so joe was able to communicate that to his rebel friends so he really did find a sense of purpose in in the salvadoran revolution
1: ladies and gentlemen you're listening to uci conversations i'm your host kevin bossenmeyer and my guest today is uci english literary journalism and chicano latino studies professor hector tobar talking all about his career in writing how it has evolved and how did he arrive at UCI? How do you come to UCI when you became a professor? Was that 2017?
0: Yes. How I came to UCI, well, you know, I was at the Los Angeles Times for many years. Um, I went back to the LA Times and I'd been a foreign correspondent. I came back and I was a, a columnist for several years. And then I was a book critic. And um, I just, you know, I really I, I, I really wanted to uh, try my luck at academia. I wanted to sort of have more time to write. And so I quit my job at the LA times and I took a job at the university of Oregon. And so for several years, for three years, I commuted from Los Angeles to Eugene and worked three or four days a week in Eugene. And then I would uh, come back to Los Angeles to be with my family. And after doing this for three years, I was lucky enough. I was approached by the great professor emeritus Vicky Ruiz, who was at that time chair of the Chicano Latino Studies Department, had also been Dean of Humanities. And she asked if I'd be interested, and I was. And so that's how I came uh, to UCI to be in two great departments, really, Chicano Latino Studies with our f- wonderful faculty, uh, you know, addressing the, the needs and concerns and shaping the minds of uh, so many young uh, Chicano Latino students. And then also in the Department of Literary Journalism. Uh, with so many great colleagues who themselves have had wonderful careers in journalism and uh, in nonfiction writing, like Amy Willens and Barry Siegel and Miles Corwin, and so many other writers uh, who are in that department, Erica Hay- Hayasaki, excuse me, Erica Hayasaki, uh, and so uh, it's just uh, it's been wonderful to be in that department as well. Excellent.
1: What about personal adversity? Did did you feel like there was a any time in your career i think a a lot of times students look at professors and they think that it was i don't know if easy road is the word for it but they they don't necessarily think that you know a uh, esteemed professor wouldn't go through hard times do you remember any time in your career that was particularly hard
0: oh yeah i mean i think dealing with rejection is always the hardest thing for a writer. And I was not, I'm not really, my constitution doesn't really prepare me, hasn't really prepared me for dealing with rejection, which is something that all writers face. So I remember after I wrote my first novel, first of all, it took two years for that to sell, and then it sold for $5,000. And uh, it was just, you know, it was this realization that the world wasn't going to just fall over for me, (laughs) you know? (laughs) It was, it was going to take a lot of hard work, you know, to, uh, to have a career in writing. And I don't think I ever felt like I wanted to give up. I just felt more like just, wow, I'm going to have to really, really work on this. So, for example, you know, my second, I decided to write it before my first novel sold. I wrote another one. And my agent at that time, the great Virginia barber, who was the uh, agent for the Nobel Prize winning Canadian writer, Alice Munro, among others, you know she, i i wrote this novel for her and she was trying to sell it the second novel and it didn't sell and i remember just the day that one of her agents working for her called me up and said uh, you know uh, hector you know nobody showed up for the auction there was no offers for your book and just feeling completely devastated you know i was 36 years old by then and thinking you know this is it i mean i'm not going to i'm not going to um to be a novelist what's going to happen with me and then if you know i few months passed and I decided, okay, I'll write a nonfiction book I wrote a nonfiction book. That book was sold and published. And I went back to that book that had been rejected. And I looked at it after many, many years. And I realized that the reason why it hadn't sold was because it sucked. (laughs) It was a terrible (laughs) book. And so I went back and I redid that book. And so I had finished the first draft of that book, which eventually became the barbarian nurseries. I finished it on September 3rd, 1996, which was the day that my first son was born. And it was finally published in 2011, right? So 15 years later. So 15 years later, I published that book. And I go to my first reading, which was at a bookstore in LA at Skylight Bookstores in Los Feliz in Los Angeles. And there in the back of the audience, because my family went, is my son, my oldest son, my first son, the one who was born that day that I finished the first draft of that book. 15 years earlier. And so that's how much time had passed. That's how much time had passed between the time that I, you know, I, I first tried to finish that book and when it was actually published was 15 years. And a lot of that time was me just teaching myself how to write a serious domestic novel, how to write about uh, a a family life. I read uh, Chekhov for the first time. I read Alice Munro. I read John Cheever. I just did so much reading to sort of lift myself up. And this was already when I was in my (laughs) forties, you know? So um, yeah, I just, you know, you deal with rejection as a writer all the time, the sense that um, maybe what you're not, what you're doing is not so important to the greater culture at large. And, um, and what keeps you going is, you know, just the love of doing it. So if there's something that you really love doing that you're passionate about that, that, that's going to be what you need to do, because that's going to be the, the thing that you give 150% to, because that's really what it takes to be successful at anything. My experience as a teacher is that it's not necessarily the most so-called talented, you know, students We're going to be successful and have successful careers. It's going to be the ones who really work the hardest at it. Because I've had many students who I would have, when I first met them, I would say, "Oh, this is a good student," but they didn't really blow me away as being like you know the top top students I'd ever met. Those students are the ones now who are you know getting jobs uh, at at different uh, you know uh, journalistic outlets and um, and writing books and whatnot. You know, it's just like. It really takes, that's what it takes to be successful is is to have a belief in yourself, even at the moments when everything else tells you that you should give up.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow. Very well said. And finally, Professor, do you have any plans for a new book?
0: Yes. In fact, I just finished uh, the manuscript of a book which I am now going to begin to revise soon and which I'm hoping will be out in 2023. Uh, It's a nonfiction book, which I wrote during my fellowship at Harvard last year. I was off for a year. I did the Radcliffe Fellowship at Harvard University, and I wrote this this book, which is basically uh, an attempt to capture what it means to be Latino or Latinx or Hispanic Uh, or Mexican-American, or Guatemalan, or whatever, or Puerto Rican, in this age of xenophobia, the age of Donald Trump, and Trumpism, and make America great again. So I'm trying to capture the meaning of being Latino in this age of intolerance.
1: Excellent. Just quickly, Professor, you mentioned the Radcliffe-Harvard Fellowship. Does that just give you time to write? What does that fellowship involve?
0: You're supposed to go live in Cambridge for a year and have meetings with other students, other fellows, and work on your project. Yes, it gives you basically the, the ability to, to work for a year on your project. Uh, you have to give a couple of talks. I ended up doing mine virtually because it was during COVID. That, that's what I do with it.
1: Excellent. Professor, thank you so much for giving us this tour of your career and insights into what it's like to be a writer. We really appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much. It was a great honor to speak with you.
1: Thank you again to UCI Literary Journalism and Chicano Latino Studies professor Hector Tobar for sharing his amazing career as a writer and journalist. I had no idea that was quite the adventure, and I found his personal thoughts about overcoming adversity to be both grounded from experience and truthful. Thank you. For those of you who wish to hear more from Professor Tobar, he will be presenting as part of the What Matters to Me and Why Campus Speaker Series on April twentieth, 2022, at noon that day in Humanities Gateway. For more information and free reservations to this excellent speaker series, you can just Google UCI What Matters to Me and Why. We'll see you there. And coming up next at the top of the hour is a new Spanish speaking show hosted by Oswaldo Diaz with Spanish speaking interviews and conversations about mental and physical well being. Enjoy. You've been listening to UCI Conversations, where every week we explore another corner of the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot 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 everyday anteaters. If you'd like to hear an encore of this show, or any of my past shows, simply go to my podcast website at www.bossenmeyer.com. And comments and suggestions are always welcome at kboss at KUCI.org. You are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I've been your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. Until the next show, keep wearing your mask and caring about your neighbor. So long, everybody. And take it away, Fred Kaplan, with Signifying.